Hello, and welcome to the weekly podcast of C2 Church in Columbia, Missouri. The walls of the city of Jerusalem were mere rubble. This news made Nehemiah very sad, so Nehemiah began to rebuild. He led the people day in and day out. Enemies attacked, but they overcame. God helped them finish the work in only 52 days. The Jews who had once been in captivity now returned home. Change your world in 52 days. The story of Nehemiah. Well, it's good to be back with you, C2 Church. I took a few weeks off, had some guest speakers. I got to, I got to sit in the audience. You know, that, that's a great experience. I loved Hilda Buntain as she talked about how she was changing her world where she was living in Calcutta, India, and how God had led her to start such a wonderful ministry that we support through our Faith Promise Missions giving. One of the prettiest speakers we've ever had uh, here spoke last week, my wife, Darcy. Now, for the record, yeah, you can give her a hand. Someone asked me this week if this was the only time I let her speak. I would love for her to speak more, but that's the only day she will speak, so I, I take advantage of it. So we're, we're glad that you are with us as we continue the series, Change Your World in 52 Days. We'll be in Nehemiah chapter 5, and then next week we're going to conclude the series, and then I'm looking forward to our summer series starting May 29th. You saw the preview video just a few minutes ago. It's, uh, it's going to be a great series called At the Movie. So if you've uh, missed the last few weeks and want to catch up kind of where we're at, you'll certainly understand today's message, but if you want to get some other context, feel free to get our podcast online at c2church.com. As we honor our graduates, all, all the graduates from kindergarten to grad school over the last uh, week and even today, it's really great to see some new graduated. Congratulations as you stay, and even greater is that you're staying here in Columbia with all us, so you can clap for them, that's, a, that's good. Mariah, we're so proud of you and your families with you today. It's so good to see you guys. I also wanted to honor our police officers. This week is National uh, Police Appreciation Week, and I get to serve alongside three other pastors in our community as chaplains for the police department. I tell you, as I get to ride along with them and serve with them, um, these men and women do a great job, and they really have a good heart. We have several police officers in, in our church, several were at first service, and I know there are several sitting in here today. We, we won't be pointing them out, but we do want to honor them, and, and uh, I hope they receive that, that clap for them, but I'd like to take a moment just to say a prayer over them. So would you join me in that? Father, we thank you for those men and women who place themselves in harm's way as within blue, blue lines, who fight evil and must face that evil every day without letting it encroach on their own hearts and their own minds and families. And so we pray, Father, that you, by your Spirit, would lead them to act justly and righteously, to stand against all who would bring harm to individuals and in our community as well. Would you keep them safe? Would you lead them as they do what is right? We thank you for their sacrifice and their service. May we honor them, as Scripture says, to honor those in authority. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you see them around the community this week, make sure you thank them for their service. 
As we continue our series, if you have your phone, go ahead and turn it on and open up your Bible app, or if you have one of those actual ink and paper ones um, like this, you can open that up to Nehemiah chapter 5 as well. Maybe if you're on Facebook or another social app, you'll go ahead and check in at C2 Church and let everybody know how great your church is. Um, I'm not telling you you have to say that, I just think you know you should do it anyway. But as we dive into Nehemiah chapter 5, we've seen how bravely Nehemiah, as a wise and faithful governor, as he's stewarding the city and the people of Jerusalem, as he stood upon his guard against the attacks of the enemies, here we have him in chapter 5, no less courageous or active to fix a problem at home in Jerusalem. Having kept the people from being destroyed by enemies from without, he's just now trying to keep them from destroying one another from within. While the building of the wall was in progress, internal evil showed themselves, which prompted immediate response and action and attention. Complaints were being made to Nehemiah by large numbers of lower classes, the poor and the oppressed, both men and women, their voices ringing out loud, as it says, in a great cry because of the oppression from the rich and those in power, combined with some other permanent and temporary causes of depriving them of their houses, the land which, which, with which they made their living, farming, and even their own children as they had to sell their children into slavery to pay debts and to survive. Let's read Nehemiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1. We'll just read the first five verses to start. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brethren. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong together. See, this great project, the rebuilding of the wall and the city, reveals an even greater crisis. The economic pressures created by the rebuilding program may have brought to light some problems that were already existing, simmering in the background, but now coming to light under the leadership of Nehemiah. And they needed to be solved before the city could really truly be restored. And we see, according to the text, that there were three issues at hand, three primary causes to the poverty that we see. One was overpopulation. Nehemiah writes that the people came to him and said, there's a great number of us. This cause was, was not only primarily because of the people who were currently in the city, but all those who were coming back from the exile in what was formerly Babylon. As the Persian Empire began to release them, and the people were going back, and people hearing that the city was being rebuilt and restored and revived, caused people to flow back into the city and the area. And so there was a great need, causing the resources to be exceeded. The situation was aggravated by a drought and famine that had been going on for years. So not only do you have an over overpopulation, but now you have scarcity of resources driving the prices higher. And then you add to that the weight of taxation from the Persian government as they demanded taxes from the people. It was 
It's a pretty large amount. In fact, research has shown that upon the Persian Empire's fall and their capital, Susa, was discovered 270 tons of gold and 1,600 tons of silver that had all been melted down and made into bullion and had been stored. These were the taxes that had been amassed during this reign of the Persian government. And we see in this moment, we see Nehemiah begin to lead through crisis. And I think we can learn as we strive to change our world, whether in 52 days or simply our lifetime, we can learn from the leadership of Nehemiah, led by the Spirit of God. It angered Nehemiah what he saw and what he heard. It was directly opposed to the very mission that he himself had set upon for Jerusalem, the restoration of the people and the city of God. But I see three things that I hope we can learn from today from the story of Nehemiah. And the first was that Nehemiah would lead with purpose. He would lead with purpose. Verse 6 of that same chapter When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. It angered Nehemiah. What was happening just simply angered him. It was directly opposed to the very purpose and mission he had set upon to restore Jerusalem. And here his own people were enslaving their own. And Nehemiah is like, what are you doing? This is the purpose for which Nehemiah came. Do you remember in week one when we talked about having a heart, a dislocated heart, that you see something that shouldn't be, and you say to yourself, somebody ought to do something about that. What should our response be? Might as well be me. Why not me? Nehemiah has that same heart here in chapter 5. He begins to ponder what he has heard. He has that self-talk of, what should I do? Why in the world is this going on? He was angry. It was a, a righteous anger. Somebody should do something about it. Nehemiah knew his purpose. And we see that in this moment. Why was he angry? Because it stood against the very purpose he was there for. We see in chapter 1 that he has an emotional response when he inquires about the people of Jerusalem. It says that he wept, he was sad because he heard of the state that Jerusalem was in. And here he is overcome with anger against what he hears. Nehemiah knew his purpose. His purpose was not simply to go to Jerusalem and build a wall. Nehemiah didn't have a love affair with a wall. This was not what drove him. It was because he knew his purpose. His purpose was not a wall. His purpose was the people. His purpose was the people. Nehemiah knew this about purpose. Your kingdom calling will always be about people. No matter what God calls you to, no matter what you feel your life has led you to, what job, what career, your kingdom calling, the kingdom of God, your calling, your place and purpose will always be about people. It may be to a location. 
You may be called, like our missionaries, to a foreign country or a culture not like your own. You may be called to a certain group of people, an ethnicity. But it's always about the people, never a project. And for Nehemiah, it wasn't about the walls. It was about the safety, the security, and the success of God's people. And he knew that the wall must be built in order for the people to have safety and security and for the government and the commerce to thrive. Nehemiah was always clear on his purpose. We don't see him waver. In fact, he had an unwavering clarity about purpose. Could you say that about yourself? That you have an unwavering clarity about the purpose you have in this life. Beyond your job, and beyond your career, what are you here for? Great leaders understand their purpose. Even those in business see the people side of things. We make great products or we provide great services for the people. And when we miss that, when it becomes about profits, we see in the world of business that decisions then are made without any moral character and in the harmony of the people. If you want a purpose that is God-honoring, it will always be people centered always so you make a great product you provide a great service for your business it's centered about people and people and so it is with the kingdom of god jesus was clear on his purpose in his own words he said i came to seek and to save that which was lost this was his father's business of which he was on a mission his purpose for nehemiah had an unrelenting focus too To be sure, Nehemiah would avoid distraction, but he would not avoid people. He would avoid distraction, but he would not avoid people. Nehemiah had a huge job to finish, right? How many of you, when you you set out to do a task, you like, like you just have this focus, right? Like you just go after it, right? If I'm reading a book, or maybe it's even watching TV, I guess, you know, you you turn off everything. Don't, Don't bug me. Right now, kids, I'm finishing this. If I'm mowing the lawn or whatever it is, I want to get that task done, right? In fact, I like to check off boxes. Anybody box, you you just get like an adrenaline rush when you check something off a list, right? Sometimes you get distracted and you do something that's not on the list. So then you put it on the list and then mark it off and you're like, oh, I feel so good. That's another issue, but Nehemiah did not just have a project to be completed. He was focused on the people. And so when he hears about this great injustice, he doesn't say, uh, not now. Hey, we'll deal with that. Let's get the wall done first, and let's, uh, let's focus on this, and then we'll get to the problems at hand with the people. No, he says, we need to deal with this now. He was angered by it because it went against his purpose. Great leaders don't forget people in the midst of projects. Great leaders don't forget people in the midst of of projects. Jesus was focused, but he didn't miss people either. In fact, I think some of his greatest moments of miracles and interactions occurred unplanned, at least according to the human understanding. It was on his way to do something. He was going to heal one person, and a lady grabs his tunic, and he feels the power go from him. There's this moment, this meaningful interaction that happens. And Jesus doesn't blow it off like, oh, hey, I'm on my way somewhere else. Jesus knew his purpose, and he never overlooked people. 
The second thing I see with Nehemiah is he would lead with love. We've talked about this a little bit, love for people. And I think this was driven because of his love for God. He had such a great desire and love for God that he could not help but love the people of God. Love for God will always lead you to love for people. I have yet to see someone who is so in love with God that they failed to love people. But I think the failure to love people is because of our failure to really draw closer to love God. Again, for Nehemiah, it wasn't about the product or the wall or the cause or the campaign. It was about the people. You could say that Nehemiah was pro-life. That to him, every life mattered, including the lower class of society. Those without power. Those without even any property. Those without any dignity. He believed that. Because I believe he understood the Imago Dei. The image of God stamped on every person. That people were created in the image of God. He understood that the very breath of God was in each person. I believe he had a great understanding from the reading of the scripture from Genesis. How God created man, humans, in a special way that they would carry forth his character and his value. Both as a people and as individuals. Perhaps he understood Psalm 139 that writes... You knew all about me, God, before I even lived one day. You knew me before I was even born. God knew the plan for each and every one of us. And I like the way Psalm 139 goes on to say, And you knit me together in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made by God. Think about way that the scripture says that. You knit me together. That's not mass production. Right? You were knit together. I mean, you might feel like humans are just mass produced, right? And with mass production, there are some errors and there are some recalls and you might look at your neighbor and say, you should have been recalled. Something wrong with you production line broke down. Maybe you feel that about yourself, that somehow there was an error in the programming of production and you got, you got missed. There was a mistake. But listen to the scripture again. You were knit together in your mother's womb. Any knitters in, in the house today? I see one hand. Matt Copeland, did you raise your hand? Yes, crochet. I gotcha. I gotta give him a hard time. He's our facilities director. Knitting is a very personal thing. You pick out the colors. You come up with the idea and the plan, and you begin intricately to knit. Your hands are on every fiber of that thing that's knit together. Every moment, from concept to completion. This is how you were made. Your life matters because you have a very fingerprint of God on every fiber of your being. He's the one who knit you together. That's 
like Christians are pro-life. is because we understand the value that God placed on every life from the moment of conception to the moment we take our last breath in this world and enter into the next. Nehemiah had a, con- had a grasp of this concept. And so his purpose to lead with love was all about the good of the people and the glory of God. It was not the project or the wall. It was because he lived with an interrupted life and a dislocated heart. He was living a comfortable life in Susa as the cupbearer to the king. And you can't get better than a posh job like that, except if you have a bad day, you have a bad day. And he gave it up because he heard about the distress of the people in Jerusalem and his heart was dislocated. In that moment, his heart went from where he was to where his purpose would find him in the purpose of restoring the people and the city of Jerusalem. His heart was dislocated to Jerusalem and now he would pursue that purpose. And he would lead with love. about the good of the people and the glory of God. He gave up his comfort. We see that in Jesus as well, who, being in very nature God, gave up heaven to come to you and me. And I see Nehemiah in this moment. He calls a large assembly, and he accuses those who are guilty of this injustice. Right? He shames them. He calls the people together, the the whole assembly, and then he calls them out, right? Uh, If you are responsible for this injustice, please raise your hand. (laughs) It's like he put a giant post right on Facebook calling these people out. He says, this is not right. Verse 8, he says, as far as possible, we have bought back of his own personal expense, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling our own people only for them to be sold back to us. So he continues, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Why was he so mad? Because of the injustice perpetuated by his own people. They themselves... We're enslaving their own. He and his other brothers and leaders were purchasing back the slaves from the Gentiles. This process, this word used here, is called redemption. To redeem someone who has been enslaved by purchasing them, by paying off any debt that they owe. This is the idea of redemption that we see throughout Scripture. It's to buy out of slavery those Jews who, by crisis, had been forced into slavery. And listen to his language. I mean, he totally accuses them. He calls them out. This isn't right. He says, you, speaking to a specific group of people responsible for the injustice. But listen, he says, we must. We must not do this. He says, I have lent. But notice when he talks about lending, He is not charging interest to the point where people have to sell farms, homes, and children to pay. 
he's given freely of his own resources. He uses language, my people, our brothers. He doesn't use use language that separates those people, you people, them. It's so easy when we see a problem or a crisis to begin to create enemies. And yet instead of creating enemies, he invites them to be the solution. You have been doing this, but let us, let us not do this anymore. Let's bring freedom to our people. And he begins to use words that depersonalize God's creation. It takes us to places in our culture that even now we see today as people who have different viewpoints In different ways of life, we say those people, them, and they become our enemies in the end. Spencer Jones, one of the commentators on this passage, writes about Nehemiah. He has a very just anger. The anger of a righteous man at flagrant wrong, of a noble and generous spirit at base rapacity, of a lover of the people who was making great sacrifices for their good against those who cared not for the welfare of the community so that they would, could accumulate wealth for themselves and their families. And of Nehemiah, of one who feared God, that his name should be dishonored by the very people whose mission it was to exalt. He's saying to the Jews, we were created as people to honor God, that all nations would be brought to him through us. And here you are bringing shame to his name by selling your own brothers and sisters. Failure to treat others, especially fellow believers, with compassion is an insult to our maker and a blot upon our testimony to the nations. But love for God brings about love in your own heart for people and an anger for all that would harm God's creation. This is why The greatest commandments are love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's a concept found throughout all of Scripture and highlighted in its failings. Jesus has an interaction that highlights this. And the gospel writer Luke records it in the 10th chapter of his writing in Luke chapter 10. Jesus is teaching, and an expert of the law stands up to test Jesus. Rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life, he asks. And Jesus, being so wise and witty as he is, answers the question with a question. What does the law say? How do you read it? The man responds, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus' response, do this. Man, Jesus, you're so awesome. Two words, then do it. That's why Nike got just do it, by the way. But the man was not satisfied, perhaps feeling like he needed to justify himself. He says, well, who is my neighbor? So Jesus answers with a story. A man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Not an easy or quick journey by any means. In fact, going to Jericho, there was very little purpose, at least for most people. 
perhaps his journey was one that wasn't quite above reproach. But the journey would not be safe either way. This man, a Jew, on his way to Jericho then is found by thieves and robbers who beat him, take all of his possessions, and leave him beaten, bleeding, naked on the side of the road. Jesus continues his story saying, A priest comes along and sees the man, and upon seeing him and his condition, moves to the other side of the community as well. A Levite, a person of position and notoriety, perhaps even of power, comes along as well. He sees the man and sees his condition and continues on his way as well. And then Jesus talks about a third man, a person of no position or power. In fact, a person so hated by them that the crowd listening would have been in shock that Jesus would use this person as an example of righteousness. Jesus continued his story and said, And then a Samaritan then came upon the man and seeing him bleeding and in need, dismounted from his own donkey, put the man upon his own donkey, took him to a place where he could care for him, and then paid for his care and settled it at his own expense. Which of these men did what was right, Jesus asked, this teacher of the law, the one who showed mercy as the And Jesus replied simply, go and do likewise. You got to wonder about the question as we get into who is my neighbor. Perhaps if he could not identify who his neighbor was, he'd be under no obligation to treat people as his neighbors, right? I mean, if I don't know who my neighbor is, then I I have no responsibility to treat them otherwise. But maybe we would do better to ask the question in reverse. Who is not my neighbor? That's a right there, there, pastor. You know, I could just wrap it up. Who isn't your neighbor? Because when you ask it that way, who isn't my neighbor? It begs a whole different answer. Because every person has value, every life matters, then everyone I come in contact with is my neighbor. No matter how different they are from me or despised by culture, they are my neighbors. And I walk justly and I lead with love when I respond accordingly. So who is not your neighbor? And finally, lead by example. What good is our love for God if we don't love our brothers? And so Nehemiah would lead by example, which is a love expressed in action through compassion, generosity, and service. I want to close with this as the band comes. You see that Nehemiah leads with compassion, with generosity, and service. Because his behavior was governed by principles of these three things, compassion, generosity, and service. Rather than being opportunistic, or out for selfish gain. And we see that his generosity and compassion come through in that he redeemed at his own cost, cost to himself, 
those who were in slavery. Isn't this just a foreshadowing of what Jesus will do for us in buying us back? Out of our own willful rebellion that put us into slavery to sin, Jesus comes at his own cost to bring us back. Nehemiah truly is a foreshadowing of the person of Jesus Christ. I want to read the final passages here. Verses 14 through 18. Because it highlights the action, the attitude of Nehemiah. It says, When I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. He was the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day an ox, six choice sheep, and poultry were prepared for me. Every ten days an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on the people. Remember me with favor, O my God, for all I have done for these people. Nehemiah led by example. He didn't take what was traditionally and culturally acceptable. Did you get that? He and his men were there for a purpose, to rebuild Jerusalem. Though they could have taken land because of unpaid taxes, they didn't. He says, I know what the preceding people were like, but I will not lead that way. What about you? Where you lead? Do you lead with an integrity that is above reproach? Do you lead by example? We see here that Nehemiah did. That though he could have, he didn't. He didn't justify a wrong by continuing a wrong. I know children, not my own, but other children that you people have, who will justify their wrongdoing by someone else's wrongdoing. And you hear this in arguments all the time, be it political or personal. Well, you know, such and such and -and so-and-so did this. That does not give you the excuse to continue to walk in unrighteousness and injustice. You must take responsibility and lead the way, people of God. And Nehemiah would do such a thing. He would not burden the people with heavy taxes or take the food that was owed to him, but he would feed the poor, inviting 150 people who were not on the government's payroll. He would invite them in. And then all who would come, he would invite in. He would feed those who had need. He did not acquire the land that others had done so. And he closes that part by saying, and I would work alongside to rebuild the wall. I would work alongside the people, not as a bureaucratic in office. And I think you could lead in love, compassion, generosity, and service because it's hard to be unjust to people you serve. It's hard to act in 
unjustly when you look them in the eye and you see their faces and you see the fingerprint of God on them. It's very hard to act unjustly. But can I say this? I've heard a lot of talk, whether it be on social media or just in, in the readings that I do as pastor and a former youth pastor, about complaints about the next generation. Oh, you know those millennials, right? About how they are. Those millennials, they just don't, they just don't know. I can't believe they're that way. Well, you know who created millennials? You people created them. It's your fault. I blame you. generations that follow and so the way they are acting is a reflection on how we've treated them and I don't even know about the next generation we have haven't even come up with a creative name for them yet right so our response as those in the preceding generation should be to lead by example not to act as if any generation to follow us owes us anything but to serve with humility, that they might follow our example. Why does a generation act entitled, like someone owes them something? Can you ponder where they might have gotten that from? In younger generations, we would do well to serve those who've gone before. I'm so thankful for the teachers in our room. Thank you, Brittany. And all those around. The end of the year is coming. We celebrate the graduates, but we celebrate all the teachers who've poured their lives into these young people. We celebrate them. And because of the investment, we hear about stories like Hannah, whose life was impacted by a church that didn't forsake the next generation, but loved them and invested in them. Because that's the future of our city. Not only are they leaders of today, but they begin their leadership journey for tomorrow, today. So lead by example. Maybe it's getting involved in VBS or in our kids' ministry or in youth on a regular basis. Serving in college ministry. Whatever that looks like. We're going to close in a song called, what is this song called? The City is Yours. I picked it out. But I think it'll be a moment for us to reflect in our last few moments together on what God is calling us to do in this city, in this area of mid-Missouri. And I'll come back up and close. Father, we pray you'd fill our hearts with your love for people. That we would love the way that you loved us. That you would help us to lead. Wherever we're at, wherever you have called us to lead with purpose, to lead with love, and to lead by example. As we endeavor to change our world, whether it's in 52 days or with the remaining time we have in our life, would you cause our hearts to be broken for the things that break your heart? Help us to love. church in this moment as we talk about the way that God loved us. Perhaps as we've talked this morning, 
Even at the beginning, every song focused on the love of Jesus. And as we took communion and focused on his death and his sacrifice, and even in the message, we look to God's word. It comes to this moment where you must decide what to do with Jesus. When we talk about the way that God loved us, how did God love us? Well, the book of Romans talks about that God demonstrated his love in this, that while we were still in our sin, while we were his enemies of our own choosing, Christ died for us. This is love, not that we loved God first, but that he first loved us and sent his son to die in our place. And so in this moment, in just a second, I'm going to ask you if you want to step into that reality of relationship with the Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask you in a second to raise your hand. We're going to say a prayer together with all those in this room who've already made that the commitment of their life and their heart to invite Jesus to lead and guide them and fill them with his Holy Spirit. If that's you this morning, with every eye closed, every head bowed, would you hold your hand up high so I can see it? Thank you, anybody else? Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Anybody else? You can put your hand back down. Thank you. We don't need any front. Thank you. Anybody else? Then church, would you pray this prayer with all who have raised their hand as we believe in our heart, as we declare with our mouth this prayer. Say, Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to live the perfect life that I could not live, to die in my place, to pay the debt that I could never pay, and to raise again to new life, to live the life I've always wanted in you, Jesus. Thank you for leading my life. Help me to lead with purpose and love by an example set by you into my life. Help me to live for you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Church, would you celebrate all those who raised their hand this morning? Welcome to the family. We're so grateful that you too have made that decision to follow Jesus with your life. Before you leave, make sure you take one of the cards in the back of your chair and mark the appropriate box that you made that decision. Drop by our Connection Center just down the hallway. Let them know you made that decision. We've got a free gift, a little book we'd love to put in your hands, get you started on your journey. I want to invite you as well, immediately, to join our youth pastor, Pastor Ben, in our offices at the glass doors just down the hall from that for Discover Water Baptism. We believe, just like communion is commanded by Jesus as an ordinance of the church, so is water baptism as a public declaration and identification with Jesus and his church. So Pastor Ben's going to be leading Discover Water Baptism. So I encourage you to take part in that 15-minute class. He'll talk you through it, answer questions. Even if you don't know if you want to yet, it's a great uh, place and safe place to get to know what water baptism is all about. And that'll happen here in just a few seconds in our offices at the glass doors just down the hall. We love you. Look forward to seeing you next week. Have a great week. Hey, we're so glad you listened in. 
If you made a decision to follow Christ today or would like more information, please email us at nextsteps at c2church.com or visit us at c2church.com.